many years ago that if you wanted to scare the average Episcopalian death, you'd accuse them of being charismatic. Because for many people, that term engendered all kinds of terrible images. They envisioned people praying in strange tongues, singing songs with their hands in the air, doing all sorts of non-Anglican sort of things in the church. Now some of you may not know, but the Greek word charismata simply means special gifts. And we have references throughout both the Old and the New Testament of God sending His Spirit on various people in a special way. He bestowed His gifts on people, His charismata. Moses was one of the earliest accounts we have of a person being given a special gift by God. And then there were the prophets of the Old Testament that were blessed with the gift of the Spirit. We read just a few weeks ago about John the Baptist being filled with the Holy Spirit, as was his mother Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph. But before we began to get the idea that the gifts of the Spirit are only bestowed on certain people at certain times, let's look and see what it is that Paul has to say in this morning's lesson. For the next several weeks, we're going to be reading through 1 Corinthians. So all I'm going to do this morning in some respects is to give us an introduction to something that we may be delving into more deeply in the weeks to come. Paul is the first of the writers to truly understand and attempt to describe for us just what the gifts of the Spirit or spiritual gifts really are. But before we go any further, I need to, you need to understand two things about those gifts. First, Paul tells us that there is one Spirit who is the source of all gifts of empowerment. And because of this, we need to recognize the manifestation of the Spirit as a sign of the intended unity within the church. There's that word manifestation again that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Remember I said manifestation reveals something and helps us something to see more clearly but in our senses? It helps us to have a clear insight and understanding. It's an awakening through which we see things differently. God bestows His special gifts on each of us so that we may be about doing His work in the world. The second thing we need to see is that these gifts of the Spirit differ from person to person, but they're always meant to be used for the common good. Now when I say these gifts would be used for the common good, I'm talking about the good of the church, the body of Christ, not simply the good of society, although generally speaking I would hope that what's good for the church would be good for society, whether society acknowledges it or not. In this morning's lesson, Paul is attempting to stress the essential unity in the church. The church is the body of Christ. That's what the prophet Isaiah was attempting to tell the people in the Old Testament lesson. Just as God was married to the children of Israel in Old Testament times, the church is described as the bride of Christ in the New Testament. And the characteristics of a healthy body, the church, is that every part prefer, performs its own task to the best of its ability. But Paul is not saying that unity has to mean uniformity. He's saying there are different gifts given to different people for different functions. Now they all come from the same spirit, but they're not given so that the individual receives any glory, but rather that the church as a whole is blessed. When the temple was being built, we read there that artisans and craftsmen and builders, and it seems that God had given them special gifts so that they could serve the common good 
and being a part of the building of the physical structure of the first tabernacle. And later the temple in Jerusalem. So we're not just talking about the spiritual side of the church. I believe that spiritual gifts can be manifested in many ways and utilized in many ways as well. But always remember for the benefit of the whole church. The one thing that comes through when we read Paul is that everyone, every believer, has been given a gift or gifts by the Spirit to be used for the good of the church. Every believer has been given a gift. You have been given a gift, whether you realize it or not. You may not be using it, but it's been given to you just the same. It came at the time of your baptism. In chapter 13, Paul reminds us that the greatest of all gifts is that of charity. You may never have thought of that being a gift before from God. And then he went on in chapter 14 and he instructs us how we're to use our gifts in a practical way. As I said, for the next several weeks, I'll be taking a long, hard look at some of these gifts that we have given to us as we read through Paul's letter to the Corinthians. But this morning, let's look at just the list of special gifts that Paul gives us in chapter 12. He begins in verse 8 by saying, To one is given the message of wisdom, and another the message of knowledge. And that's how it reads in the NIV translation. The translation that we heard read just a moment ago uses the word utterance, the utterance of wisdom, the utterance of knowledge. But message of wisdom and message of knowledge, I believe, implies that the person is receiving that wisdom and knowledge from God, not simply proclaiming it. I think preachers particularly need to be mindful that what we preach needs to be the wisdom and the knowledge that we receive from God, not simply something we want our congregation to hear and believe. The two gifts, wisdom and knowledge, sound like they might be the same thing. We often talk about wisdom and knowledge as though they might be interchangeable. And in some instances, I suspect they might. But again, when we look at the Greek, we can see that there's a difference. The word wisdom, sophia, it, it describes the knowledge of things that are divine. It's the highest kind of wisdom. It's a, a knowledge that comes not so much from learning as from communication with God. And Paul says there are those who communicate with God and gain their wisdom from Him. Now the word in the Greek for knowledge that Paul speaks of here is gnosis. And it's a special knowledge, but it's a more practical knowledge rather than a learned knowledge. And we've all known someone who just sort of always has the, the right answer, always seems to know the right thing to do in any given situation. They can act almost on instinct to do the right thing. This is the person that Paul describes as having the, the word or the message of knowledge. Paul says the body needs both these gifts. The person who communicates with God in such a way that they know and understand the deep things of God. And the person who can in their daily life put their practical knowledge to use in such a way, way as to get things done effectively. The next thing that Paul describes is the gift of faith. Now when we talk about having faith in something, we normally think about what we believe in. Something we've placed our trust in. But, but here Paul is talking about the person whose faith produces results. It's not simply an intellectual conviction that something's true. It's that passionate belief that causes a person to totally commit himself to that belief. It's the faith that turns dreams into action, visions into deeds. And Paul says the body needs that kind of person. 
if it should be successful. The church needs passionate people of faith. And in verse 9, Paul says that the Spirit gives to some the gift of healing. What does that mean? Is he, is he talking about doctors healing? We need to be aware that during the time of the early church, healing miracles were not unusual. And if a Jew were sick, it was just as likely that he might go see the rabbi as a physician. And it wasn't uncommon that he'd be healed. There's no question that the gift of healing existed in the early church. There are instances where the disciples healed the sick. There are stories in both the Old and New Testament of people being raised from the dead. That's, that's pretty serious healing. So before we begin to stop at this, remember that there were instances or have been in modern times when people have been brought back from the dead. We tend to attribute that to modern medicine and modern science, but who knows how and through whom God's Spirit works? I, I don't. It may be easy to debunk some of these things if some individual wants to take the credit. But when a doctor admits that they don't know what happened, but they know something miraculously occurred, who can question that? Is that God's Spirit working through that position to bring about healing? Who's to say it's not? I do know that those involved today in holistic medicine recognize that the body and the spirit are all intrinsically woven together to treat one successfully. You, you have to treat them both. And fortunately today there are those who recognize the need to treat man as a whole rather than attempting to split man's body and soul as though they were two separate things. In verse 10, Paul says that we have some that have been given the ability to work miracles. Another translation I looked at last week said the gift of miraculous powers. And still another translation said the gift to perform miraculous deeds, wonderful deeds. I don't know, maybe I've seen too many episodes of Touched by an Angel or God Friended Me to be able to describe how I feel about people who can perform miracles. But what, what Paul is talking about here is exorcisms. Some of you here this morning will say, I've seen enough movies about that. No, I don't believe about that either. I mean, who can forget Linda Blair? Screwing <laughs> up that green pea soup all over everyone in the exorcist 50 years ago. I still remember that vividly. But again, keep in mind, Paul is writing to the early church. And many illnesses, especially mental illnesses, were attributed to the work of demons. And it was the function of the church to exercise those demons. Now we can't say for sure whether a person was possessed or not. But if the person believed they were, the effect might be the same. Exorcism, even today, is still very much reality in some cultures. And in those instances, the function of the church to minister to the mind of that diseased and disturbed person. Paul goes on to lift prophecy as a gift. But a better word might translate preaching. So often we tend to associate the word prophecy with the foretelling of something that's going to happen later on. But what Paul is describing here is a person who is so close to God that they know and understand God's mind and heart and will. And they can translate that so that people, God's people, may understand it fully. That's what the Old Testament prophets did. They shared with the people the message that they had received from God. One of the gifts of prophecy may well be one who warns and cautions the people that their actions are not in accordance with God's will. And he may also offer advice and guidance in an attempt to direct the people in the way that they should go. 
And Paul tells us that the church needs people who can speak God's words to his people. I believe Billy Graham was one of God's great prophets. And I believe there's others that have that gift that have been called to summon God's people in a powerful way back to God. The remainder of the verse in verse 10, Paul lists two last gifts that he says there are some who have the gift of discernment. And by this, Paul means that there are some who have the ability to distinguish between what's good and what's not. What he's actually describing here is a person who can distinguish between what's of God and what isn't. It's human nature to be suspect of those things that we don't understand. And this was even more so in the first century because there were so many things that the people didn't understand. And the body of Christ still needs people, still needs those who have the gift of discernment in order to help the rest of us work through some of those hard issues of life. The final gift that Paul discusses this morning, the lesson that speaking in tongues and interpreting those sayings. I said, well, I'll go. Paul's going to discuss this a little bit more in detail in a couple weeks, so I'm going to hold off to live myself. But if you think you've seen good worship, I suspect you should have been in a New Testament church. I think they knew how to worship. The early Christian church was vividly alive and things happened, astonishing things happened. The daily lives of the people were intensified because of what was happening within their worshiping community. We may not understand all that there is to know about what Paul describes as the gifts of the Spirit, but we can be assured that it was through those gifts but a handful of ordinary people influenced and changed the world. Let me take just a minute to look at the gospel lesson for a moment. It's a story of the wedding in Cana. Now, we heard it read just a moment ago, and I talked about this a couple weeks ago in our study <coughs> in coffee hour. If you're not staying after coffee hour, you're, you're missing out. This morning's reading is the account of Jesus' first public miracle. And in it, we see an interesting side of Jesus. We get a glimpse of the relationship between Jesus and his mother, and we witness an event that must have been a, made a meaningful impression on his new disciples. The miracle of turning water into wine is one that I suspect everyone's familiar with. I suspect everyone here could, could retell that story yourself. But when John tells us the story, there's always more than first meets the eye. John sort of layers his writings. There's that simple surface, surface story, and then there's that subtle underlying story that has a deeper meaning for us to look at. This morning's gospel lesson is no different. We can see from the lesson that this is a wedding where Mary, Jesus' mother, had some involvement. Other writings of this time record the story of a wedding in Canaan. And those writers suggest that Mary's sister may have been the bridegroom's mother. That would have been Mary's nephew, Jesus' cousin. And if that were the case, that would certainly explain why Mary was concerned that all went well. And why she was willing to get involved when it seemed that there was a problem about to arise. So listen to the story for a minute. A wedding feast was a very special occasion. Our, our lesson begins by saying on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana. Now Cana was about five or six miles north of Nazareth where Jesus had grown up. But if we read the verses leading up to this morning's reading, we see that Jesus had just returned from the area of the Jordan River where he had been baptized by John and only days before he had begun to gather his disciples. 
So it's not out of the question that Jesus arrives back home and he along with Peter and Andrew and James and John and Philip and Nathaniel, the first of the disciples to follow Jesus, he arrived home and he learns that his cousins to be married. And it may have been Mary who said, bring your friends and come to the wedding. I suggested a couple weeks ago that when we were looking at the reading that Jesus was probably invited to the wedding because people liked him. He was popular among the people and they knew he would be a good addition to the wedding feast. It was a happy time. And Jesus and his disciples were glad to share the festivities. But the arrival of six additional young men at the wedding feast may have been part of the cause of the problem. The arrival of six unexpected, thirsty, hungry young men might well cause a problem at any feast or dinner What we do know is that a Jewish feast, wine was essential. The rabbi would have said, without wine there is no joy. She heard somebody around here say that. Not right? <laughs> I can't remember who it was. But this in no way was meant to suggest that people got drunk, because drunkenness was a great disgrace to the Jewish people. They actually mixed water with their wine. But the host was about to run out of wine. And this would have caused a, a terrible humiliation for both the bride and the bridegroom. Hospitality is a sacred duty, and, and should the provisions run short, well, that just shouldn't happen. The next thing we see happening is Mary coming to Jesus, and uh, she says, we have no more wine. And I can't help myself ask myself, well, why did Mary think that Jesus could solve that problem? He'd never performed a miracle before. What was it that caused Mary to think her son could do something this time? I can't answer that. But I can say she was his mother. She'd watched him grow up. He'd been in her home for 30 years. And during that time, she'd seen that Jesus knew how to handle things. He seemed to know what to do when there was a problem to be solved. But Mary may have just thought, he's never let me down in the past. And he won't let me down today. Now that's all speculation on my part. But it makes sense, doesn't it? A mother knows her children maybe better than anyone else, and for whatever reason, Mary felt that this was a problem that she could bring to her son. Now, Jesus' response has always been one of those things that just, just didn't sound right. It always seemed so blunt and impersonal and just out of place. Mary comes to Jesus and says, we have no more wine. And Jesus says, woman, what concern is that to you and me? My hour has not yet come. You didn't know her, but I wouldn't want to think what would have happened if I'd ever called my mom woman. <laughs> but this is the neat thing about our ability to look at the original text and see that sometimes the original Greek just doesn't translate well into modern English. The word deny can be misleading. In Victorian English, it would have been interpreted as milady. That certainly doesn't sound like woman. The word we use in, in more modern translations. But it's the same word that Jesus used to address his mother from the cross when he instructed John to look after her after he was gone. So in reality, Jesus' response to his mother was very polite. And yet he was saying, my lady, what is it that you want me to do? My hour's not yet come. I don't know if I'm ready for this. This was about to be Jesus' first miracle. Did he know he could perform a miracle? I don't know. I think Jesus had what Paul would call the gift of wisdom. He was open to hear God speak. And maybe God said, 
Son, you can do this. His mother believed that he could solve the problem. She was confident enough to tell the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Is there a lesson there for us this morning? When Jesus tells you and me to do something, and we always ready to do it without question? I said earlier, everyone knows the story. Jesus had the servants take some of the clay pots that contained water used for washing their hands and feet. He told them to empty that out and fill them up to the brim again. And then he told them to draw out some and take it to the chief steward. That was the, the chief, they called him the chief steward. He was like the head waiter. And he was responsible for seeing that everything at the feast was running smoothly. And our lesson tells us that when the servants brought him this new supply of wine, he tasted it. And he couldn't believe his taste buds. He went to the bridegroom and he said, is this a new idea? Most people serve the breast bride first. They serve that vintage wine early on. And then after everybody's had a drink and their, their palates may be a little dull, then they bring out the jug wine, that stuff in the five-liter box. But this wine, he said, this is the best wine I've ever tasted. So it was that a young girl's wedding in Galilee of the village that Jesus performed his first miracle. There'd be other miracles, there'd be greater miracles. But on this day, the first disciples got a dazzling glimpse of what this man Jesus could do. And John says, the miracle revealed the glory. And the disciples believed in him. It was a miracle that wasn't performed against the backdrop of some great occasion. It wasn't performed before some vast crowd of people. It was performed in a simple surrounding of normal everyday people. Going about their lives, doing those things that everyday people do. The Son of God reached into the domestic life of common people and in essence said, if you'll bring them your problems to me and trust me to solve them, I can. And I will. Most of us would prefer to do the big things on the big occasion so that others might take notice. But Jesus took the opportunity to prevent a young girl and a young man from being humiliated in front of their family and friends. I think we can see two sides of Jesus in the simple act. Jesus is truly both man and God. And I believe that we see that illustrated in this morning's lesson. John also helps us to see this morning that we don't have to know and understand what it is that Jesus might do in any situation. Like Mary, we must only come and place our needs before Jesus and then trust that he'll provide. And Jesus not only provided the best wine, he also provided an abundance of wine. God's grace is limitless. It's sufficient and more than sufficient in our every need. Jesus used his special gifts to fulfill his mother's request. He used his gifts to prevent the embarrassment of the young couple. He used his gifts to give his new disciples a small taste of what lay ahead for them in the days to come. The first time that we see Jesus' action in John's Gospel, he's at a party. He doesn't separate himself from the secular part of our lives. God wants to be where his people are. Not just here on Sunday morning, but throughout the week. God not only comes to us, but the scripture says that he abides with us. He abides in us. He's the shepherd, we're the sheep. He's the vine, we're the branches. He's the bread and we're invited to feed on him. He's the water of life that quenches our every thirst. And through all of this, God comes to us seeking that personal relationship and offering that relationship as a free gift with no strings attached. Jesus offers us a wonderful example to follow this morning as he shows us 
that his gift has been given to each of us so that we might be of service to others. The manifestation of God's presence in our life meant to appear in our service to one another within the life of the church. <clears throat> what gift has the Spirit given you? He has given you a gift. 